0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 753rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody, to our monthly seed chat with Bill McDormand. Hello, Bill. Hello, hello, everybody. Hey, hey. So. Tonight we are talking seed saving and climate change. And Janice and Bill wrote this for us. Notice anything odd lately? Perhaps climate change has your community a bit up in arms. Unexpected rain, hotter high temps, lower low temps. How do we prepare for the changing climatic conditions in terms of growing and seed saving? Bill and me will delve into this ever evolving topic and offer tips for riding the waves of uncertainty. All right, let's jump in, Bill. Surfing, waves of uncertainty. An an interesting thing, I'm going to just jump in here. We have always, always for the past 15 years in Phoenix done our mesquite bean milling the first weekend of July. And what we're finding this year is the mesquite beans aren't ripe. The mesquite beans are just aren't right. We have had to push the milling off until the fall. So things are changing. That's a climate issue. I don't know if it has to do with climate change, but it's definitely a ripening climate issue. Are we seeing things like that? Yeah, I think you're pointing out something really important is
1: that it's unpredictable it's just becoming unpredictable. So one of the predictions when I was in college about climate change is that the Gulf stream would slow down. Yeah. And is, and that's what takes warm water to Europe. It comes up along the East coast of the United States and goes across to Europe. And that though, those currents are what sailors used to use to go back. You would come South and then go back to Europe and those are slowing down. And because of that slowdown, Europe was supposed to go into a new ice age as climate change progresses, especially in the wintertime, because there would be less warm water off its coast, bringing warm air to the continent. There was a headline that went around the world yesterday, and I'm just going to read the one here from ABC News. Europe is the fastest warming continent on the planet, according to a new IPCC report. And shocking to me in the report was that, I'll just read this, in 2022, Europe was approximately 2.3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial revolution average, 2.3. The whole climate conference, world climate conferences, have been using this pre-industrial age as a baseline, saying that, but first it was 1.5. Then we can't go above two. And what Greta has been saying is that over 2.5, we, might, we are going to start tripping catastrophic changes that we can't stop. And Europe in 2023 is already showing a 2.3 degree increase. And that is totally unpredictable. And I think I'm just making my point. If you think you can understand how you're going to play this and maybe get grow bananas in Wyoming, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to be the case. So as seed savers, I think we need to think about this and maybe draw out some general things that might be good directions to go or things to think about. And so the number one thing that I keep hearing more and more from people is the short season. Find varieties of the vegetables and the grains and the things that you grow that take less time to grow. And the thinking is that then you'll be exposed to fewer fluctuations. Things right. that might either free unwanted frost or huge heat waves or torrential downpours or whatever. And that would be something that, that I would think about. And that for me, that was natural. When I was had high altitude gardens, my little seed company, because we only had 80 days to grow things anyway, in Idaho. In Idaho, back in the day, at 6,000 feet, and so I was searching all over the planet for short season varieties. And even then, much to my surprise, people all over the world, even at sea level, were buying them because they just like to get their food faster. There's a trade-off; you get smaller. Usually, You don't get big, huge, 18-inch ears of corn in 68 days. Fisher's earliest corn was only little teeny sweet corn things about eight inches long. But we got them. We could grow corn in a short season. And I think that you might start thinking about this as a gardener is like when you hear about short season
0: things, that may be a value you want to embrace now. When you talk short season, 80 days, that's less than two and a half months. Yeah. It's phenomenal
1: what you can find. You have to be a little bit careful when you look at a catalog, which I don't do anymore, partly because I try to get my seeds from my friends and a seed exchange or a seed of library because I want stuff that's been tried locally. Yeah, but When you look, they'll put days to maturity. You have to take that with a grain of salt. I own High Altitude Garden Seed Trust for 28 years, and believe me, nobody does really careful scientific testing as to see what day each variety matures, and it would be different in every garden anyway, if your conditions are more favorable or not favorable. And so it's a general guideline. And if you get into things like tomatoes and peppers, the industry just assumes that's not included. The days that they print don't include getting that tomato up to a plant. In other words, most of them go off a transplant date. It's not from seed. And that way, so we used to sell tomatoes that would mature in 50 days. If you put a seed in the ground, it won't mature in 50 days. That was an eight-week-old plant that we used to put. Because where we lived, you had to start everything indoors. And that was true for tomatoes and peppers for much of the United States and especially Canada. So it's just built into the equation. So things talking, like corn that are direct seeded were different.
0: Are we talking between frost dates? Is that the, what the 80 days is?
1: Yeah. When, how many frost-free days do you have? Yeah. So uh, in Ketchum, Idaho... I once had nine frosts in between Memorial Day and Labor Day. We didn't have frost-free days some summers. If you looked at a 30-year average, they would say we had 80, maybe 90 days. We did have a lot of summers where you'd go without having a frost. They could happen at any time. And that's not unusual in that sort of mid-tier across the United States at say lower than 4,000 feet. is to have 80 or 90 days. When I was in Siberia and asked how many frost-free days they had, I was really surprised when they said more than 100 on average. And I'm going, how does that work? They were really low in elevation and they were near a huge body of water, the Ob Sea. This was in Novosibirsk. Then whenever you're near a large body of water, that helps moderate. The water stays warm. So you may have cold air blow in, but if it gets anywhere near the water, it warms up and you probably have fewer frosts. But it was a high latitude. It was up about Edmonton, Alberta in Canada. Wow. But they were very low in elevation. So it just points out how complicated this whole thing is. i right. trying to find. you can, You have to ask around. Ask the old timers if you don't know how many frost-free days you have as a, this is a beginning gardener question, ask the person right next door who's been gardening for 50 years. And if you can't find them, then work your way down, (laughs) down the street and down in years until you find somebody. And it's always the same. The oldest, most experienced gardeners are always the most conservative in trying to predict that they'll say, sure. And (laughs) shorter because they've been burned by errant stuff. And now with climate change, all of that is off the scale,
0: yeah. I think. Well, yeah, one of the things that we had to do, I have a desert planting calendar that I put together with Matt Sir, maybe 25 years ago. And we put it out. It's You can get it at plantingcalendar.org, but it's for the right. low desert. It's a mm-hmm. preview we give away. And about three years ago, we had to update it. We pushed everything further into the fall. It used to be that I could start my hardy greens, brassicas, kales, that kind of stuff, uh, arugula. I'd start them in mid-August and can't do that anymore in the desert. So that's the kind of thing we're dealing with, right? Yes.
1: And I think there's something really important to understand about this is that the change that we're about to experience isn't going to be a lineal progression. Mm. In other words, you're, you you can not tell me that, Oh, we're going to have to update this every three years because the next time it might be a year and a half. Yeah. And the next time it may not even be good by the end of the next year, that's exponential growth. And that's what they were afraid of that we start tipping into a 25 Degrees Celsius. So, what do you do? What can we do? Uh, Let's just think practically. You're the president. You're a prime minister. You're a pastor of a 250,000 member megachurch. What do you tell everybody? You've got a platform. What are you going to tell everybody to do? What can they? What can you tell everybody today to do that's going to make a difference? One physical, practical difference in helping their lives hold together amidst these changes and number two psychologically what can you do what can you get them doing so that they stay productive and positive about what's going on otherwise it's just hopelessness right sets in it's or and we're seeing this more and more with young people is like a nihilism sets in it's all gonna go anyway why might as well go party or go get drunk or whatever. And so that's what I think we're facing, especially as older. We're becoming elders, Greg, and we're both optimists. We're going to stay busy. That's what we do. We find solutions and create new things. So I'm saying all of this to just make one point. Everybody who's come on this before and listened to me has heard me say it. I really believe that the most important and practical thing everyone could do right now is pick up a seed, learn as much as you can about it, plant it, and learn how to save it. That Because they are exponential. No matter how few you start with, it can scale up to millions of pounds. And because of its self-replicating system and because of its ability to adapt, you can start whole new adaptive agricultures wherever you are. The question remains, will it adapt enough to keep regional food production alive enough in the face of collapse of our global supply lines? Who knows? But at least we know we're playing with an adaptive system. And in my experience, I think we've got a good chance.
0: What there really is to do is for us to figure out how to grow our own food and save our own seeds, right? Duh. That's what we've been doing, right?
1: That's why it's so fun to come on to a program like this and talk about We can talk about climate change and accept it all. It doesn't matter whether you deny it or not, or believe in it or not, or want to study it or not, or find it a bummer. You're going to have to deal with the consequences now. We all are. And we all are. It's already smoky. There's a huge 14,000 acre fire just east of Camp Verde here already. Oh, wow. Maybe the largest hurricane they've ever seen is starting to form already in the Atlantic, heading toward Trinidad and Tobago at a time when we've never seen one this early. And it's over ocean water that's warmer than we've ever seen. Another wake-up call. Got all that. Right. So now what can we do? I think we're doing it. The short time we did Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. We had 82 seed libraries. Sign up, 385 seed stewards that were willing to share seeds, 95 new seed teachers. Everybody who grows and saves seeds should immediately be teaching somebody else how to do it. We need to exponentially grow this ability so that we're like the Russians I met in Siberia in 1989. And their food system went down when the Soviet Union collapsed. And many of them went, oh, it did? They were growing 80% of their fresh vegetables in their own gardens. Wow. They started growing potatoes again and other things, and they made it. I'm not saying we should give up on modern transportation or our global supply systems, but I think it makes me feel better. I can stay positive in the face of global climate change
0: well, when there's... I know
1: that I'm doing what I can and
0: I'm trying to get my neighborhood to do the same thing. Yeah. And here's what I've told people about this for years whether all of this happens or not, if you're growing your own food, it's fun. It's healthier for you. And it's coming from your front and backyard. So there's nothing to lose. It's like a reality television show.
1: That's so cool. That gives you fresh tasting tomatoes (laughs) that you can blow your neighbors away with as gifts. And you get to partake in it, right? You just go out and start doing it. It's funny how television took us away from reality. That's what the whole thing was about. We go in at night and escape reality. And then we started with reality TV. So now it's time to get to real reality TV and just turn the TV off and go back outside and start growing some of your own food. And we know the hormones that flow from just putting your hands in the dirt. Isn't that Michael Abelman's story? Oh, yeah. That you had on your podcast? Oh, my God. It just makes you feel better just
0: putting your hands in the dirt. Yeah. Hey, Alicia's got a question about short season. Okay. She wants to know is short season 60 to 90 days, or is it anything less than 120 days?
1: Depends on the variety and where you are. If you will look around, for each kind of vegetable variety or grain or whatever you're looking for, some mature earlier than others. And it's a part of their upbringing. I've got a purple barley that was grown, we think for a thousand years at 10,000 feet in Tibet. Wow. And it matures here in Arizona a month earlier than all my other grains. Hmm. So that would be an example. So I don't think you should focus on how many days But it's relative. Does this mature faster than that? And I'm not saying give up on the slower maturing things. If you really love your varieties and you get huge squashes or whatever you're getting from it, it's just if you want to pay attention to what's going on and maybe assure yourself more food in the face of uncertainty, shorter Mm -hmm. varieties just naturally will give that to you, shorter season varieties.
0: And so we eat a lot of broccolini, and I found out recently that broccolini is a brand name. Uh, <laughs> it's actually called sprouting broccoli. Is okay. what we're, so we're growing a lot of sprouting broccoli, and I've been pondering this lately. The amount that we eat and what it takes to grow. Right. So it takes a lot of energy to grow a head of broccoli. Right. It takes 90 to 120 days. It takes water. And what I'm discovering here at the new urban farm, we haven't named it yet, in Asheville is how it's my next level of what's it going to take to do this. And one of my goals in moving here was to see how much of my own food we could grow. And thank gosh, I have Heidi that's doing, she likes, Heidi likes doing plant starts. Yeah, there you go. And you, did you get your greenhouse yet? No, haven't done a greenhouse
1: yet. All I'm right. I'm still working on that. That could help with starting plants. So I used to grow a variety of broccoli. It was an old land raised from Italy called de Decechio de de-
0: broccoli, yes.
1: And it would mature very fast. We could grow it in 90 days, 80, 90 days. But what was great about it was that we could cut the head. And they were small. This is not your big dinner plate broccoli or anything, but it would come early. So I plant a lot of them. You cut the head and then the side shoots would start coming out. Yeah. And it would keep producing heads of broccoli. They were small, but
0: all year long. Clear up until it snowed. I couldn't find them in the snow. Wow. And you can eat the leaves in this trunk too, as long as it's not the trunk's not too woody. It's brassica, which is cabbage, cauliflower, mm-hmm. broccoli, Brussels sprouts. They're all the same. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's jump back into our topic find sh- short season varieties. Right. And we can find short season varieties in pretty much everything, can't we? ask
1: yes that's one of the gifts we have i think there are enough varieties of things around now you have to get down out of the commercial in some cases we talk about miss pens mountain seeds 8000 feet she has short season things one of the things i discovered when i brought back tomatoes from siberia that were cold tolerant siberia after all right. is that they also were heat tolerant. They grew better in over 100 degrees than almost any of the other tomatoes I'd ever grown. So maybe a better description was temperature tolerant. So I know people are going to say 10 seeds are are cold tolerant because she's up at 8,000 feet and they're short season, but I live in a really hot place.
0: They may not work. Try them. That's what I would say. Try them. That kind of goes back to our last month's conversation of grexing. Basically, grexing is just mixing up all the seeds and throwing them out there and seeing what grows. And marking those things that mature first
1: Mm -hmm. and saving those seeds. Make that your value. That's a really great point. And you you can move your populations. If you only save seeds from the ones that are first. I have a gardener here at Thunderfoot. Um, who's using part of our property this year to garden, I'm learning a lot from it. It's really great when you share space for gardening, community garden or whatever, because you just learn so much. But he's only saving seeds from the first pepper, he told me last night, this variety of pepper that he really likes. And because of that, he wants to shorten the growing
0: time for his peppers. That just boggled my mind a little bit. If you're planting peppers and harvesting them, the seeds of the earliest ones, and you plant them and you harvest of the earliest ones, how short can we go?
1: I don't know. I don't know. That's what makes this fun. We're on the frontier. There's no money in research, or very little has been in official research areas. Our great land grant. Land grant colleges that were set up to study how to do things in each of our regions like this don't do that anymore. <clears throat> yeah, skies to live. That's what makes it so fun. We have to be careful because we could overstate what's going on. We've got to be good scientists right. and be a bit conservative. But hey, who knows? Along those lines, everything that's ever happened to me in a garden. As far as my conceiving of limits, well, I won't be able to do that or it's going to take longer or whatever. All of those barriers have been broken at one time or another. I'm still in awe of what I, and I'm sure you're the same way. It's just yeah. if you want to blow your mind over and over again, just garden. As much as there's disaster, there's always things happening that are just like, how did that happen?
0: Yeah. Alicia has a good point in the Q&A edible weeds she said 10 edible weeds likely growing in your yard i've eaten dandelion i've eaten purslane i've eaten sorrel i've eaten lamb's quarter i've eaten white clover that's five of them and then there's sheep sorrel curly dock chickweed plantain we just part of this is getting creative
1: Well, and I think that's even a United Nations focus now is to diversify our diets.
0: Yeah.
1: If I remember right, there were about 1,500 plants being used as food in the United States in 1900. Okay. 1,500 being used widely, being grown. These are varieties of vegetables and different kinds of grains and fruits. We were eating 1,500 different kinds of foods. And if you go back, Another hundred years to the first peoples that were here, Gary Naba and they did, they were trying to estimate maybe up to 30,000 different plants wow. were used for food or medicine
0: on the North American continent. Hold on. Let me guess now we're down to less than a hundred. Oh, when last time I looked,
1: there were 13 plants providing 90%. Wow. Of human nutrition on the continent, and four, wheat, rice, corn, and soybeans, provided over half of all the calories consumed. And on any given day, and this was about ten years ago. I'm sure it's changed some. On any given day, up to eighty percent of the calories consumed in the United States were soft drinks. Oh, I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> And we wonder why we're sick. <laughs> yeah. So diversify. I love this. First thing you learn when you move to Tucson is vertilaga vertilaga What's that? It's that. a per, it's a purslane. It's a wild yeah. purslane that grows all over. And even the Spanish hated it. The indigenous people, the Tono autumn were doing that. And then the Spanish, especially in tough times, reached out when they didn't have enough food. And it's now it's
0: coming back into vogue. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Things like wood sorrel or sorrel or oxalis. Uh huh. That tastes lemony. I used to pick that at the urban farm and throw it in salads. It's really good. Yeah. You have to be a little bit careful.
1: The one warning if you're going to go to a wild diet, especially Mm -hmm. if you get that lemony flavor, part of that makes your teeth and your tongue feel funny. That's oxalic acid. Uh, and it's naturally in them it's one of the we like it and it's good if you have small amounts but if you went to a total wild diet with that stuff you could get into trouble and we can't make these switches back overnight and and there's a lot to learn so find somebody who already knows and walk with them that's the best way to learn this stuff otherwise find somebody who's written about it one of the masters for your area we've got john slattery now down in the southwest Doing wild edibles. Before that, we had Michael Moore, who was his teacher. So there's people all over. We've got Peter Bigfoot. Oh, Peter, yes. He's doing live cafes in Phoenix now once a month. He comes in, somebody's dragging him into town.
0: Really? Yeah, for all the young people to ooh and ah at him, which I think is just great. Nice. I didn't know that. So one of the things we haven't talked about is bugs. Yeah. And I just read an article two hours ago, how this is the worst year. This doesn't affect plants, but it affects people. Worst year ever for ticks. Ooh. Some people might've seen me shaking. As far as I can tell, I track it back to about 1999 or 2000. I contracted Lyme disease back then in Arizona. Didn't know what it was or how it was, and I didn't get diagnosed until 2014, but that had a tremendous impact on my life. And I only got diagnosed because Heidi got bit by a tick and Heidi actually had a bullseye bite. Bugs are getting way out of balance. I had recently one of my people that I know that live up elevation from Phoenix by about 2000 feet between Phoenix and Prescott. She said there's grasshoppers everywhere, they're eating everything.
1: Yeah, I've heard that up in Utah, Southern Idaho, they're having a Mormon cricket invasion this year, which is not new. They're about every seven or eight years they'll come about, but mm-hmm. they, there can be so many of them, Greg, that they cover the highway, and when people put on their brakes- Oh my God. And crush their bodies, it's so slick, the cars slide off the road. Wow yeah but the next year usually there's not they come in waves they out eat their own ecology and but that's something else to think about is that you're right you use the right word out of balance yeah
0: and again that
1: comes back to short season yep if you've already harvested then you or and you can get food quick that may help
0: you so it sounds like the biggest thing we can do is look for short season, whether you have a long season or not, you look for short season so you can get your food faster. And in theory, that should also contribute to less of a disease and bug impact because you're not having to deal with them as, for as long. Yeah.
1: That's what we're saying. So that's the number one thing you could do. Number two is to get as many different people around your. You, in your community, doing the same thing. Yeah. That's essential. You're not going to make it if you're the only person, you know, growing a garden. Yeah. You're just not. And we've talked about that in the past. So it becomes really important right now to become a seed teacher and to share Mm -hmm. seeds and to ask and to raise this question at your seed library and your seed exchange. What are the shortest season things? So that maybe some of us can focus on that right now.
0: All right. I got one more thing and then we'll go for your last comments. Alicia says how human, she sent an article, how humans eating insects could save the planet. Yeah, I had a woman on my podcast very shortly after I started. She was podcast number 20 or 25 or something like that out of the UK, I think. And that's what she was doing. So this was like seven years ago. She was researching bug protein and mm-hmm. had gone to a conference in uh, in china where that's what they were doing yeah yeah i saw a short program on
1: Sichuan where the Sichuan cooking comes from which is so celebrated in chinese cuisine and there are a lot of bucks. they eat a lot of bugs. they're different ones and they've got different ways of preparing them from grasshoppers wow. to worms and the history of that greg is that they were closed off from the empire mm-hmm. as things were switching, and one of the emperors or whatever, and their whole section, they were starving. They yeah. started eating bugs out of necessity, and I just well, think that there's something about that. And they raised it to a high level of cuisine.
0: Yeah, my my permaculture design course teacher back in 1991, Tim Murphy, uh, right. he was in Vietnam. He was a Vietnam vet, and He shared with us how when they were in Vietnam on the ground, they were eating bugs because that's what they had. There wasn't anything else. Yeah. Yeah, If you can't beat them, eat them. (laughs) Any last thoughts, Bill? Oh, I just
1: I really enjoy doing this with you. Thank you. I think we got to keep the spirit going. I think, remember, think about this practically because I'm open to other ideas. But what can we tell our friends and neighbors and family and people around us to do? Actually, something you can work on every day. Something that has can make an exponential impact. I know seeds can do that. And we've talked about that today, but we're going to need all the tools we have.
0: Yeah. Excellent. And next month, we're talking about seed journaling. Ooh,
1: that'll be fun. I've got some great
0: journal stories. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thank you, everybody. And we will catch you next month. Thanks, Bill. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.